0: Let's take the Word of God and uh, turn to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus in chapter 1. And so we um, uh, began last week uh, to try to capture the general theme of the book of Exodus, and we went to Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, where the Lord says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. And so the idea of the book of Exodus is an exodus... Yes, leaving uh, the land of Egypt, going to the promised land. But what is it really about? It's about the Lord bringing them unto Himself. And so we need to keep that in mind as we progress through the book of Exodus. But we're, we're going to read through the chapter, the first chapter this evening. And so notice Exodus chapter 1. Let's uh, begin reading in uh, verse 1 if you'd like to follow along there. As I read, Exodus 1, verse 1, the Bible says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all of these souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass, that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies, and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasured cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew." And they were grieved because of the children of Israel, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All of their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shiphrah, and the name of the other, Puah. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered, ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that He made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all of his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, And every daughter ye shall save alive. I'd like to bring your attention to verse 12. And so, in the middle of this chapter, the Bible says here, and again, there's a new king, and they began to put uh, affliction on them, burdens on them. And the Bible says in verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. I want us to think about verse 12 here. I'd like to preach this evening. A message that I've entitled, In Affliction, The More They Multiplied. In Affliction, The More They Multiplied. As we come here to the book of Exodus, uh, we are beginning a new book. Again, it follows from uh, the book of Exodus. And uh, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, there is a a connection that is made between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, where it mentions again that Jacob came into Egypt with all of his sons. And so all of the son, all of Israel and uh, his household and his sons and his grandchildren are uh, coming into Egypt. And the Bible mentions, kind of repeats the end of Genesis chapter 50 in verse 6 and say that Joseph died. And so we repeat those things because now we find Uh, that the children of Israel are in this foreign country, Egypt. And we also remember that God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that that would happen. He told Abraham that uh, his descendants would be brought into a land, that they would remain in that land for 400 years, and that God would bring them out of that land. And so we find here at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we even read the first statement, verse 7 Of Exodus chapter 1, the Bible says the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. And so when we read here the book of Exodus, it really begins in the first seven verses as, this is wonderful, the children of Israel, if you remember, uh, the reason why they were brought into Egypt was because there was a worldwide famine. And Joseph's brothers were sent by Jacob to go buy food so that they could live and survive the worldwide famine. And so when uh, Joseph brought them in, we remember that they were given a uh, the land of Goshen, which was a, a very fruitful land in Egypt, and was given to them. And the Bible says that it was a land of blessing, and they increased, they were fruitful, they multiplied, they became exceeding mighty, and the Bible says the land was filled with them. And so there's no doubt when we begin the book of Exodus, it seems to us that we know how the book goes. Uh, We know that they're going to be in bondage. We know that there's going to be uh, ten plagues as God's judgment upon the Egyptians. We know that God's going to bring them out. But as we begin reading in the book, we find that everything is well. At least it seems to be well. Everything is going great, uh, but yet uh, chapter 1 gives us some insight into what happened among the children of Israel that got them to a place where they were increased and fruitful and multiplied and mighty and the land was filled with them to get them to the place where they're brought out. And one of the things we learn from the very first chapter in the book of Exodus is that God allowed this to happen. We're going to look at their bondage and even the, uh, the attempt to kill all the uh, a little boy, uh, Hebrew boys, from the land of Egypt. And there would be several attempts at that. And so we're going to see that God is going to make them uncomfortable, allow them to be uncomfortable so that He can bring them out. And so as we think here about uh, verse 12, he says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. As we find again in the, in the Word of God, there seems to be... Um, A statement that seems to be contradictory, but yet it is not. Uh, They were, the more they were afflicted, the Bible says, the more they multiplied. We're going to find here that the intent of their affliction was to crush them, was to prevent them. Remember, they were everywhere. They had multiplied throughout the land. They were great in number. The Egyptian says they're mightier than we are. And so we need to do something to... Crush them to uh, bring their numbers down, and their attempt to do that, the Bible says the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. You see, this is man not fighting against the children of Israel. This is man fighting against God. And ultimately, that's what we find here in this chapter. I'd like to give you three things from this chapter, and then we'll expound on those uh, three truths. I'm going to look first of all, at their multiplication in Egypt. Then we're going to see their disruption in Egypt. And then lastly, we're going to see their preparation in Egypt. Notice, first of all, their multiplication in Egypt. Verse 7 makes a clear statement for us that the children of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land... Was filled with them. This is uh, the emphasis that uh, the Bible could have just said here, God could have just told us here the children of Israel became fruitful and they increased. But He doesn't just stop there. He says they increased abundantly, uh, above expectation. They multiplied, Uh, they waxed exceeding mighty. Uh, All this emphasis shows us that God used this time in the land to bring about their number and their might and their renown. And no doubt there's many things that they learned in the land of Egypt. And so we look at their multiplication. When the children of Israel, remember, had entered into the land under the leadership of Joseph, they had been granted the best part of the land. Uh, This was the land of Goshen. If you would go back to Uh, Genesis 47, verse 6, the Bible says, The land of Egypt is before thee, in the best of the land, make thy father and brethren to dwell, in the land of Goshen let them dwell. And so Pharaoh, when uh, Joseph told him that he was bringing his family in, the Pharaoh told Joseph, give them the best part of the land. And so when the children of Israel understand what the drastic Uh, change would be they went from a place of famine of drought of nothingness to now probably at that point in, in world history one of the best pieces of property in the entire world because of the worldwide famine and so here they're coming to a land that would be very comfortable for them different than where they were in Canaan under the famine And as we think about all the glories of Egypt, there's no doubt, and many historians even agree, uh, that uh, when uh, the children of Israel left the land of Egypt and left the Egyptian bondage, most historians agree that uh, Egypt was at the zenith of its power and glory. But how did that happen? Well, it happened because of Joseph. Joseph. You remember when there was a worldwide famine, Joseph had predicted that. He had given the interpretation of the dream. And so for seven years, they were able to build storehouses And we find that the entire world, uh, when they were on their knees, they knew that in Egypt was the place where they could find grain and food. And so the entire world mobilized themselves to go to Egypt. And that's how Egypt enriched itself. That's how uh, Egypt became a a glorious place, a a mighty place, not only militarily, but it was kind of the center uh, of wisdom and prosperity. In other words, it was the place to be at that time in the world. F.B. Meyer, he, he, write, he wrote in his studies of Exodus, he says, From the earliest dawn of history, the valley of the Nile has been the home of a large and prolific family of the human race. The soul is most productive. The plow is hardly required. In the sculptures, the plowshare is, sli- is a slight instrument that can be managed by a single hand. Uh, "...though not manured by artificial means, the, uh, uh, the soil is as fruitful today as in the days of the Pharaohs. It is easy, therefore, to understand the ease and the rapidity with which, under such circumstances, the apparatus of a complex and enduring society, highly organized with its arts and sciences, its political and religious system, came into existence." Even another commentator writes about Egypt during that time. They say, Egypt worshipped her river, the Nile River. The river came to her so constantly that she was practically independent of heaven. Yet heaven was the source of her supply. She did not see the source of her supply. She did not see the blue hills which shed down upon them uh, that what themselves received, and they worshipped but the river. It is our state of nature away from God. And really, Egypt represents, to a great degree, a society that is independent of God. Most countries in the world at that time would depend on rain. Uh, but you know in Egypt and uh, most of the people who've studied this era throughout the years have made it clear that this was not a place where you, there was a lot of rain but what would happen is uh, uh, their surrounding areas around Egypt uh, there was a lot of rain in those surrounding areas and so although Egypt never saw the rain the river would often overflow every single year the river would overflow and would basically water the entire plains of Egypt so that they did not need the rain and so that's why, in large part, that the Egyptians, they, they worshipped the Nile River. They saw the Nile River as a god. They, they did not need to depend on the God of heaven for Him to send rain because they had all that they needed. They did not need to look above in heaven. They, all had to, they only had to look at the Nile River that gave them all they need every year. And so the children of Israel are in this land You see their multiplication, their prosperity, and we could say they are in the greatest place on earth. This is a comfortable place. As we'll see later, they're going to recount their time in Egypt. They're going to talk about the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. They're going to remember, they remember those days back in Egypt and so no doubt here, this is, uh, when we come here to Exodus, we read here, uh, there doesn't seem to be any, uh, any need for them to go anywhere. Why would they go anywhere? They have everything they need right here in Egypt. But God, not only do we see their multiplication, we move secondly to their disruption in Egypt. You know, the truth is God allows things in the world. You know why God allows... Often people ask themselves the question, why does God allow this to happen? People think about the war going on. So why does God allow war? Well, truly, sin is the issue, but could it be that God allows things to make us uncomfortable in the world? To disrupt our lives so that we recognize that this world is not really all that's cracked up to be? It's not really that great after all. You see, and so here we, we come to the place where uh, immediately after the statement that the children of Israel were fruitful and they increased abundantly and they they multiplied, they waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. And then verse 8, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph. So there's a disruption here in Egypt. You see, Egypt was a, an easy place to live. It was a fruitful land that would not be conducive to uh, develop good character. Uh, you see, indeed, once the children of Israel, you remember when they left the land, their most remembered behavior is what? Murmuring and complaining. Isn't that the truth? You read through the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. uh, That is the the hallmark of their character. They murmured and they complained. And by the way, that is typical uh, behavior of a spoiled child, right? Complain about everything. They have everything, but they complain about everything. And you remember, and I mentioned this, but in Numbers chapter 11, this is what the children of Israel, they're murmuring. By the way, they're getting manna from heaven every day. It's a miracle. And this is what they say in Numbers 11, verse 5. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. The cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. (laughs) Think about that statement. Does Does that not intimate the fact that they're spoiled? Here God sent down manna from heaven to feed them every single day and they're looking, look at this! Look at this miracle! We'd rather have, have the way we had it in Egypt. Think about the fish and the garlics and the melon, all those wonderful things there in Egypt. You see, here in Exodus chapter 1, we cannot remember the time when the disruption happened in Egypt. As a matter of fact, there's some more insight here because we really are not privy to all the details as to when we read about the children of Israel, they were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, became exceeding mighty. The land was filled with them. We're giving other details about their actual condition in Egypt. Now this seems to be a statement that deals with their physical prosperity. But there are spiritual issues among the children of Israel. If you turn with me to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 20, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel chapter 20. In Ezekiel chapter 20, God, again, Ezekiel sent by God to give a message to his children, and he reminds them of their time in Egypt. And notice in Ezekiel chapter 20, if we, uh, let's begin in reading in verse 5, Ezekiel 20 verse 5. The Bible says here, And I say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. So God is speaking, and this is what he says. In the day when I chose Israel and lifted up mine hand upon the seed of the house of Jacob and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God, in the day that I lifted up mine hand unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Then said I unto them, notice, this is what God said unto them, cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He says, verse 8, but they rebelled against me And would not hearken unto me, and they did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt, when I said I will pour out my fury upon them, who, the Egyptians, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So notice here, God's going back to the time while they were in Egypt. And God says, you remember when I was pouring out my fury upon the Egyptians. And we're going to find when we get there that when God is pouring out his fury, every single plague was an attack on an Egyptian god. Every single one. And so God was saying, didn't you not see what I did among the Egyptians? How how I uh, basically destroyed all of their gods before you. And yet I told you and instructed you to forsake the idols of the Egyptians. And he says, and you would not. You see, when we read in Exodus chapter 1, when they increased and they multiplied, understand what also happened to them spiritually. They began to assimilate among the the Egyptian culture. They began to accept their gods. And by the way, they got to the place where they were probably also worshipping the Nile River. Their ancestors had been used in the land of Canaan to reign, dependence on God. And now they didn't need God anymore because they had the Nile River that was a better provision than God. So they've, they've gone astray. And so God is going to disrupt them. Why? Because yes, they, they grew and they multiplied. They were comfortable in the land. But there was also some spiritual issues overshadow, overshadowing the children of Israel. And so God is going to disrupt that. And by the way, I know that Egypt, the, the deliverance out of Egyptian bondage is really a picture of our salvation. We were slaves to sin and we've been uh, plucked out uh, of the slave market of sin by Jesus Christ. And the Egyptian bondage is, is a picture of that. Uh, but, uh, but by the way, uh, God, before He redeems us, He has to disturb us in the world. You see, the reason why people don't want God today is because they don't need Him. They think they, had a, they have everything they need. They're comfortable in this world. They, they've made this world their abode, and they don't need God. How many times have I heard people trying to witness them He says. I, I don't need God. I remember we were down uh, in uh, the outskirts of uh, Dover, Delaware, and what was knocking. it was this huge house, and I before I walked up to the house, uh, this man came and he says, uh, says, no, I don't need anything you have for me. It's amazing how he discerned what I came to do. I could have just had a $100 bill. So I just want to give you a $100 bill, sir. He says, I, I don't need what you have for me. He said, look at what I got. You see, there's no need of God when you have all the things that you think amassed in this world. But you know what often brings about our salvation is God disrupts us and He helps us to recognize that there's nothing in this world that will last. We came into this world with nothing and it is certain that we will leave this world with nothing. Now, I want you to notice in their disruption here, we see first of all that their disruption began with a new king. Verse 8 tells us, Now, there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Now, what is the idea here of a new king? When we think about a new king, what does he mean here? Why why is that an important statement? Well, you remember when Stephen was preaching to the Sanhedrin council in Acts chapter 7, verse 17, he said this, But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, that's back in Genesis chapter 15, The people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. And so that's what Stephen said. So he recounts this, but he he mentions here another king. The word another here has really two ideas. The first idea of the word another is the word alos, which means another of the same kind. But there's also the word heritos, which means another of a different kind. And the second one is employed by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And so the second meaning that is used here is Acts 7.18, which means another king arose who was another king of a different kind. Now there's different things we could uh, uh, understand here. Uh, when you study uh, Egyptian history, there's dynasties. And so they go through dynasties, and so there was a, a few kings that were the descendants of certain kings, but then there was war throughout, sometimes war amongst kings. And so sometimes they mark the beginning of dynasties with another dynasty. Uh, we could even go even to the book of Isaiah. It's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 4, uh, Isaiah says this, For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. The Assyrian? oppressed them without cause? Who's the Assyrian? Now, some people say that uh, perhaps during the, uh, the war in Egypt, one of those wars, uh, Assyria basically conquered Egypt, and then they, uh, as they often would do, they set up their own king, basically, one who often was, was an Egyptian, but basically under the control of the Assyrians. And so there seems to be another influence in Egypt that now has come about. Perhaps because they've been conquered, perhaps by uh, the Assyrian nation. Now they're controlled by them, although still Egypt, still controlled by a Pharaoh. But there seems to be here another king or another spirit in the land of Egypt. So this is people who are not acquainted with Joseph. They're not acquainted with what Joseph has done. They're not acquainted with the family of Joseph that he's brought in the land of Goshen. In other words, these people uh, who now come to power a new king is someone who is unaware of a people who's been dependent on God. Now, Joseph, you remember when the Pharaoh uh, chose Joseph to be in charge of the country? You remember what Pharaoh said? Can we find a man in whom the Spirit of God is such as this man is? In other words, there was nobody in the land of Egypt that had the, the spirit and the wisdom that Joseph had. And that's why Joseph was selected. But now Joseph has died and it's been several generations and perhaps here a new king you would expect that perhaps the second or even the third generation might know Joseph. But apparently there arises a generation whether it's within Egypt or outside uh, of Egyptian influence that arises and they don't know what God has done in Egypt. They don't know Joseph and they have no idea how the children of Israel had got there. So we see here that Their disruption began with a a new king. But then we also see, and by the way, in one sense, the Pharaoh, when he granted them the land, they saw that Pharaoh perhaps as their savior. He's given us a land. But when man becomes your savior, he also becomes your persecutor. And so here there's another Pharaoh They're in the same land, but this Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. This Pharaoh doesn't know them as previously the Pharaohs had. So we see here, secondly, that their disruption was rooted in a worldly wisdom. Notice here in verse 9 and 10, He said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Verse 10, Come on, let us deal wisely with them. Now, wiser, that would mean let's do something that is best for us. What they thought would be best for, uh, for them. Notice, to prevent what from happening. Verse 10. Lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. So, their disruption here was rooted in worldly wisdom. So, here's what we find. They implemented... And we're going to see what they implement in just a moment. They implemented what they thought would bring the demise of the children of Israel and their empowerment. Right? That's what they thought. We're going to deal wisely with them. We're going to bring about their demise. And as a result, we're going to empower ourselves. But you know what happened as a result of what they're going to do here? What they implemented actually brought about their own demise and empower the children of Israel. Now I say, how can you say that? Well, what's the next chapter? You remember, they were instructed to throw all their children in the Nile River. The man-child in the, in the Nile River. And uh, they were, uh, first of all, was they asked uh, uh, the the midwives to take care of the children, to kill the male children uh, when they came out of the womb. And, and so that didn't work. But, what did that bring about? Well, Moses would come about. You see, in other words, let me put it this way, and this is the hand of God. They fought evil against the children of Israel, and yet God meant it to good. Why? Because then a family saw Moses, and they saw he was a proper child, and so they saved his life, preserved his life, and God worked a miracle. And so while the Egyptian king, while he thought evil against them, God used it to good. And by the way, the little baby that would be brought up and grown up would be the same one who, be, who would be used of God to bring about the 10 plagues on, the, on, on Egypt and then would bring about their destruction and their demise. And the historians even agree that when Moses came to bring the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, they were at the zenith of their power. But at the end, at the end of the 10th plague, and when their army was destroyed in the Red Sea, Egypt has never recovered since then. They've never risen back to their former glory. You see, what they intended to be their empowerment and the demise of the children of Israel ended up being their demise and the empowerment of the children of Israel. You see, they're not, they were not fighting against the children of Israel. They were fighting against God. So their disruption was rooted in worldly wisdom. And that's, by the way, that's the wisdom of the world. That's exactly what happened with Jesus Christ. They thought to themselves, the religious rulers, well, let's, let's stamp out Jesus Christ Let's rid the world of Him. And then He died on the cross and He rose from the dead and brought about the salvation of man. And so their evil that they thought they did brought about much good. The salvation of man. So see, we see their disruption was ridden in worldly wisdom, but then we see their disruption continued with servitude. So, Notice here, we, we continue to read uh, verse 11. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasured cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because, the children of, Israel, because of the children of Israel, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All of their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. We find here basically a three-step approach towards the children of Israel in the servitude. First of all, uh, the Bible tells us in verse 11, they afflicted them with burdens, burdens. So, the result of that was they build, built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithon and Ramses. Now, the idea here of afflicted them with burdens. In other words, the children of Israel were already there. And somewhere along the line, they afflicted them. They put them in servitude and said, Well, if you're going to continue to remain in this land, you need to build cities for us. Uh, Treasure cities, so treasure cities would be a place where you store things. And so it could perhaps be food, it could perhaps be riches, uh, but it was for the store of things. And so the children of Israel did that, and they did so under taskmasters, and so they were controlled by uh, outside of them. They did not do this voluntarily. They were afflicted with burdens. But notice that was not enough because verse 12 tells us, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Uh, The idea here of affliction means you you want to uh, come and you want to place a burden on someone, uh, and the intent is you want to make the burden so heavy that it crushes them. It, it causes them to, to lose hope. Uh, it crushes their, their spirit and, and that's what they wanted to do. Uh, but the Bible says that the, the, the more they afflict them, you know, the heavier the weight got, the more they multiplied and grew. So what they intended to happen, the opposite happened. You know, I wish that's how life would work. You know, you, the, the harder you work to get the weeds out of your garden, the quicker they come back. She say, well, why can we do that with regular plants? You know, pull them out and then they'll grow quicker? It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So we, we, we see here that they were afflicted with burdens, but then we notice uh, they, verse 13, it goes a step further. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. Verse 14, And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. And all the service wherein they made them to serve was with rigor. So, afflicted with burdens was not enough. Step number two let's make them bitter with hard bondage. So, twice we see the Egyptians made them serve with rigor. The word rigor means basically to break in pieces, it means to fracture, it means to crush. And so they tried to give them a burden that was uh, heavy on them, but now they're trying to go the next step. They're trying to crush them. And so it communicates, the idea of rigor communicates severity and cruelty. And so, yes, they were slaves. But the labor was designed to weaken them. It was designed to keep them tired. It was designed to break down their energy. Remember, because they didn't want the children of Israel to join forces with their enemies. So let's just render them weak. The Bible says, uh, uh, bitter with hard bondage. The word bitter here means to be grieved, to be vexed. It tells us that the children of Israel here has an idea of provoking something in someone. And so bitterness here is developed inwardly. It's basically having a a hatred uh, uh, towards others that's bottled up inside of you. It's a inside rage for how you're being treated. In other words, uh, we don't have really the the details as to how the children of Israel were treated. But understand the treatment of them was so severe that the Bible tells us they were bitter with hard bondage. The word hard even means that their bondage or the work they were assigned was cruel. It was heavy. It was stiff. It was rough. It was obstinate. The Bible mentions here it was labor in in mortar and brick. Mortar is simply a mixture of water and some earth material. It's probably at that, uh, in that part of the world, either mire or clay to, to make brick. And by the way, uh, many of the I believe many of the monuments that people uh, consider today as just being wonderful were have, that's how they were built. Brick is what uh, basically is the, the shape that is made of the mortar. And so they made those things and built those cities. The Bible even mentions service in the field. What is that service in the field? Well, they would basically do the work that was typically assigned to beasts. That's what that means. In other words, they had to probably go to the Nile River to draw buckets of water from the Nile, and then they had to irrigate the fields. Typically, that job was done for beasts, for animals. Whatever animal you want, you, you get the water, you put that them on, them, on the animals, and you uh, have them walk to the field, and then you irrigate the field. But no, they, they made the children of Israel do that themselves. And under the Egyptian heat, that was a cruel thing. But that was not enough. We see they afflicted them with burdens, they uh, made the bitter with hard bondage, but then they uh, tried to... Uh, decrease them with bloodshed. The Bible goes on to say, verse 15, And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, in which the name of the one was Shipra, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then ye shall live. Then he, she shall live. And he goes on. They're not going to do that, but then he's going to charge the people, saying in verse 22, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. So you have the afflicted with burdens, bitter with hard bondage, but then let's try to decrease them with bloodshed. And so the question we have is, why did God permit all this to happen? Isn't that the complaint we hear all the time around? If there was a God, why would He allow this to happen? Well, I believe the answer is clear. Such burdens, such bondage and bloodshed would make the land of Egypt to the children of Israel distasteful. Remember, we began the chapter. Everything's great. We're increasing. We're multiplying. We are comfortable where we are. We don't need God to move us anywhere. We don't need God to call us. We don't need a following, but we have everything we need. And so God then, he says, all right, you think you have everything you need? You're not forsaking the gods of the Egyptians? Then I'm going to allow difficulties in your life, this trial, this burden, I'm going to allow the burdens, the bondage, and the bloodshed so that you recognize that now the land that you hold so dear is is going to become distasteful to you. You're not going to like living there anymore. You see, the Lord had already called them to arise and follow Him. We saw that in the book of Ezekiel. He had already called them to arise and to follow Him, but they were comfortable. You see, when we think about, well, why would God allow those things to happen? Or sometimes they even say, why would God do this? As if God is actively doing evil in people's lives. No, God allows men to do evil so that we recognize in this world that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You see, we are strangers and pilgrims in this world and so God allows them to make the land of Egypt distasteful to them the Lord had already called them out now I want you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy the book of Deuteronomy so in Deuteronomy in chapter 8 the children of Israel at this point they they have left the land of Egypt that generation died in the wilderness wanderings and a new generation comes now, and look, they, they've been delivered. They've seen the miracles. Wonderful thing that God has done. But notice in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God speaks to the children of Israel before they're about to enter a new land. By the way, a new land, that would be wonderful. A land flowing with milk and honey. You remember the spies when they went into the land to spy out the land to see if it was like God said it would be? And they got there, and they brought back the report. He says, look, look at those grapes, how huge those grapes are. It's exactly what God said it would be. But we can't go. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, so all that generation, except for Caleb and Joshua, they, they'll perish in the wilderness. A new generation comes on the scene and notice what God tells them. Deuteronomy chapter 8, notice verse 6. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. Wow, sounds like a comfortable place like Egypt. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Uh, thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. And so uh, not only is the land a fruitful land, there's many resources throughout the land. Uh, he goes on to say, verse 10, when thou hast eaten in our full. Oh, you mean just like they were in Egypt before they were disrupted? Yes, just like that. When thou hast eaten our full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good of the land which he hath given thee. And why does he have to remind the children of Israel to do that? Because it's not natural to man. What's natural to man? We're going to see that in just a moment. Verse 11. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping His commandments and His judgment and His statutes which I command thee this day. That's when thou hast eaten and are full, and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied. Verse fourteen. Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from uh, from the house of bondage. Who, verse 15, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. Why did God allow the disruption to take place in Egypt? Because they were comfortable. Because they liked it there. Because they were prospering and they thought it was because of themselves. And so God, before they're about to go into the promised land, He basically tells them, don't repeat your former mistake. So we see... The multiplication in Egypt, their disruption in Egypt, but lastly we see their preparation in Egypt. So the steps were, remember, bondage or affliction with burden, hard bondage, and bloodshed. That was the last step. But really that last step, the bloodshed of the children, is really preparing them in Egypt. It's preparatory. Now, from chapter 2 through the time the children are going to go is going to be about 80 years. 80 years. Remember, Moses is going to be 40 when he leaves uh, the land of Egypt for murdering a man. He's going to come back 40 years later after he was in Midian. So that's about 80 years. But God has been preparing them in Egypt he's going to prepare them for 80 years notice we read in our text verse 15 and the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives of which the name of the one was Siphron the name of the other was Puh, and he said when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools if it be a son then ye shall kill him but if it be a daughter then she shall live uh, by the way The devil was always interested throughout Old Testament history. He was interested in stamping out the seed of the woman. And by the way, had the Pharaoh been successful in doing that, then he would have stamped out the seed of the woman. But he was not. Verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. Now, why did they do that? Because the Bible said they feared God. That's just a quick lesson. The fear of man brings a snare. It is not healthy for us to fear man. It is a healthy thing for us to fear God, though. And here they make the right decision based on their fear of God. We always make the right decision when it's based out of the fear of God. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 18 and the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive and the midwives said unto Pharaoh because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives came, uh, come in uh, unto them therefore God well you know lively well after you put him through all this hard bondage you're, you're really you're going to strengthen them not weaken them and so see that they, they thought that They were going to crush them. And this was, I mean, while they're weak, let's continue to press on them and to try to stamp them out. Not going to work. Verse 20, Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. So here, the more they were afflicted, the more they were in burden, when they tried to stamp out all the male children, they waxed very mighty, and they multiplied. They just keep increasing keep getting mitre it's estimated there are about two million hebrews that went out of egypt that's a large group of people verse 21 it came to pass because the midwives feared god that he made them houses now let me just pause here what does it mean that god made them houses now i don't we're not talking here about physical houses or physical dwelling places in egypt Okay, uh, it does not seem probable that God would build them physical houses that they would have to be soon leaving. Okay, He didn't build them houses. So what does that mean? Well, Scripture gives us clarity concerning uh, the houses. Go back to Genesis chapter seven. Uh, Genesis chapter seven. <clears throat> now, uh, Noah and his family are commanded of God to go in the ark. Notice the Bible says, "And the Lord said unto Noah." Come thou and all thy what? House into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in their generation. So, obviously, Noah is not bringing the house that he built on the ground into the, what is he talking about? His children. That's what he's talking about. Uh, Go over to Genesis 42. A little later, Genesis 42. When uh, they're having the uh, conversation, uh, Joseph and the brothers. Notice Genesis 42, uh, verse 19. Uh, jo- verse 18, Joseph said unto them, The third day, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses. So he's saying to those brothers, carry corn for the famine of your houses. So he's not obviously... <laughs> Their tents or their houses, physical houses, cannot eat corn. All right? Who eats the corn? The children. So when he says, the famine of your houses, he says, your children, your wives, and your grandchildren are not eating. Go feed them. So that's what it means, houses. Uh, We could even go uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6. Just one more there. It's, we find it all throughout the Bible, but let's do one more just to get the point. Exodus chapter 6, verse 14. These are the heads of the father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn Israel, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These be the families of Reuben. So notice uh, the Bible says, these be the heads of their father's houses. So the idea of houses is the heads of what? The children. Not the physical habitation, but the head of the children. So what does that mean here when the Bible says in Exodus 121 that God made them houses? These uh, midwives, uh, we conclude here that a house does not speak of a dwelling place. Rather, it refers to the familial blessing of multiple generations of children. Because of what they did, God said, I'm going to... Give you children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You see, probably these women being midwives have had no expectation of having houses, generations after them. But God says, you know, I'm, I'm going to change something in the order here. Because these women feared God, I'm going to give them houses. Establish generations of children after them, that will remember what these women have done. No doubt, we think about the testimony of these women. These women would probably recount those stories to their children, and to their children's children, and to their children's children after them, of what happened in Egypt. This will dovetail, again, right into the next chapter. Verse 22 says, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. And so in the next chapter we're going to see how God is going to prepare with a little child, prepare the children of Israel in Egypt. Who is Moses to the children of Israel? Well, if you, at the end of all things they would see Moses as a redeemer. That's how they would look at Moses. He redeemed us out of, he led us out of Egyptian bondage. Now obviously, no one compares to Christ, but that is a picture of Christ. That God also has prepared a deliverer. And his name is Jesus Christ. But I think it'd be good before we move on and see here the preparation or expand on this preparation in Egypt to see here how they were fruitful and multiplied. And then God allowed them to be disrupted. Do we think that if God had raised up Moses 80 years later and there was no disruption in the land and Moses came to the children of Israel with in the land of Goshen and just the prosperity. No no Egyptian bondage. No bloodshed of the children. Everything is great. And God raised up Moses and says, All right, Moses, leave the children of Israel. And Moses stands up before the children of Israel and says, All right, God wants us to leave here. To go there. Who wants to go? Raise your hand. Not one hand would go up. You know why? Why? Because they like it there. You know why people don't want Jesus Christ today? Because they like it in the world. They're living for the now and they think that that's all there is. But it's not. And so God brings about a disruption to humble them so that they can see we need deliverance out of this mess. Now we can apply this to salvation But the truth is, we can even apply this to our lives. You know why God allows things to happen in our lives to disrupt us? Because He wants us to seek for deliverance. And deliverance is found in the Lord. Now we can scheme our way through life and try to fight in the midst of disruption and try to respond and we're disruptive so let's contribute to the disruption. Or we can think about how God is preparing us. That what she wants to do in our lives. And so here in the book of Exodus, we think about those words, in affliction, the more they multiplied and grew. And I wonder in our lives if that is true. In affliction, are we growing? Is growth taking place? They grew in affliction. And so I believe that with the help of God, we can also grow in affliction. We don't have to come under the weight and the burden of affliction and be crushed. We can look to the Lord and say, God, you've allowed this probably in my life for a specific reason. And so may the Lord help us. Now, by the way, the children of Israel, they don't know what's going on. All they know is that they're in bondage, they're afflicted, and there's bloodshed. And there's going to be just an insight into this family that's going to preserve their child and God's going to do a miracle and He's going to be brought up in the palace of the king. And Israel's going to see none of that. So the point is this here, is that while all of this chaos and affliction is going on, you know who is at work? God. God is at work. They don't know it, but God is at work. And you know, when we are in the midst of affliction, you know who's working on our behalf? God is. We don't know it. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what the end of it is. But God is working. So let's trust in Him and expect great things from Him.